Welcome, everybody. Welcome to every happy warrior joining us on the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, where your participation is not only welcomed, but cherished as well. I am recording this uh, actually from the city of Accra, Ghana, in West Africa, uh, where I have been privileged to spend a few days teaching ancient Jewish wisdom uh, in this remarkable country that is actually a fantastic success story in Africa. Look, uh, I've only been here a few days. I haven't uh, seen the whole country, but I've met a whole number of people. We had uh, at one of the events, uh, one of my appearances, we had 500 people. The next night we had 700 people as the word spread. And uh, I ended up meeting a whole lot of people. I've met people in other locations. And uh, I must tell you, I have not been anywhere that I can recall where everybody was so open and friendly and expressive. Um, these are, are wonderful audiences I've been privileged to have here in Ghana. And uh, I've been enjoying it immensely, I have to tell you. It's also, um, it's also a place where, for the most part, um, men, women, black people, white people can walk safely around this city. And I, I want to mention that just because it's important that we should know that uh, in spite of what one hears about the continent, this continent of Africa is a very, very big place. Uh, there are some places that are having difficulties and challenges. Uh, there are other places that are doing better. But uh, this, this country in which I find myself uh, is, really, um, is, is really quite remarkable. It's an absolute pleasure. Uh, the country is 70% Christian. However, um, English literacy is still a problem. I think it's probably somewhere around 50%, maybe 60%, uh, not more than that. But uh, this is really one place where you can really see that Christianity, churches, missionaries, there are a lot of European missionaries uh, working here. Uh, there are a lot of extremely competent and dedicated local pastors and church leaders and uh, I've been enjoying meeting every single one of them that I've had a chance to encounter. So I just wanted to let you, let you know that um, news is sometimes very good. And, and right now, uh, I, I will tell you this, that uh, in a few days' time when my time arrives to get on a plane and, and leave uh, the country of Ghana, I will be a little sad. Uh, I, really, I really will be. I've been... Uh, somewhat emotionally moved by the people I have seen here. Uh, I have visited uh, schools and orphanages uh, that are semi-supported to some extent by the government, but are largely run by dedicated Christian men and women. Uh, I've met women who, who look after these little kids. Uh, these are, are big women with even bigger hearts and uh, it's, it's really been quite something to see that uh, in spite of the poverty, uh, these children are being given warm and loving homes. They're being taken care of. 
These are orphans. They had absolutely nothing, and they were literally plucked off the street by these people who have devoted their lives to doing God's work uh, here in Africa, specifically in Ghana. I, obviously, I've only been here a few days. I'm not an expert. I haven't seen a whole lot. But I will just tell you that uh, I have been very moved by what I have seen. I also want to tell you about something else. Glenn Beck is putting together a cruise next year, and it's a Mediterranean cruise, uh, including Israel and including uh, the opportunity to discuss who we are, who we are, where we're going, what the role of ancient wisdom is in our lives and in our culture. And the great thing is he invited Susan and me to be there. So that means we are going to be available to you if you join this cruise. Uh, he also invited um, somebody I consider to be America's preeminent historian because he is not politically correct. He simply tells the truth. No propaganda, no disinformation, no progressive agenda. And I'm referring, of course, to David Barton of Wall Builders. And uh, David is going to be on this cruise, David and his wife, Cheryl. So, so that in itself, to be able to spend time uh, with our friends, uh, Glenn Beck and his wife and Dave Barton and his wife, is really quite wonderful for Susan and me. So needless to say, when Glenn called about this, uh, we literally, <laughs> we, we barely looked at the calendar. We just said yes, and it, it turns out to be just great. And also Bill O'Reilly is joining as well. So um, it sounds like it's going to be extremely exciting. Let me give you the website where you'll be able to get more information on this cruise. It's comesailaway.com. Just, just as it sounds, one long word, www.comesailaway.com. And that'll bring you to the uh, website where you will be able to see uh, what's called the Cruise through, hi through History, Italy, Croatia, Greece, and Israel. And that's uh, Glenn Beck, Bill O'Reilly, David Barton, and Susan and me. So we're, we're really looking forward to that. Um, you, I think, will find that it may be something that you would like to know more about. Anyway, easy to get more information at comesailaway.com. And I also want to touch on something, um, and maybe more than touch on it. Look, uh, I speak about the things that separate animals from humans, and I talk about that a lot simply because uh, the progressive left is obsessed with the idea that people are nothing but animals, which, of course, is the inevitable conclusion you must draw if, indeed, by a lengthy process of unaided materialistic evolution, primitive protoplasm turned into plumbers and proctologists and bookkeepers and ballet dancers, uh, then, of course, indeed, we are nothing but animals. And so I uh, combat that. I believe it is wrong information. I believe that you are never going to be able to understand reality, history, the world, understanding the future, or the complexities of your own life if you fall prey to that disinformation 
that we are essentially nothing but sophisticated animals. We're not. And there are a number of distinctions. I've spoken extensively in the past, for instance, about the fact that uh, we are the only animal that talks. We are the only animal that has words for abstract ideas and communicate and talk about them. Uh, I've also done a show in the past about Coco, the gorilla who is reputed to have talked. Uh, nothing could be further from the truth. It is a load of unadulterated bilge water, and you can easily go back and find that particular show. But uh, for today, I want to talk about a different aspect of, uh, of what distinguishes human beings. And what it is, is that we are the only creature on the planet that constantly uses energy that doesn't come from our own bodies. Whether you look at cows or cats or camels or kangaroos, they eat food and they maintain body temperature by the internal furnace, if you like, of the body. Uh, their bodies consume the food, and part of that process is the generation of heat or energy, which allows the mammals I described to maintain an appropriate and correct body temperature. The energy that uh, orca whales and dolphins, all mammals, use to keep their body temperature up and the and uh, and able to generate propulsion to make sure they're able to travel through the ocean again just from the herring and salmon and seals that they eat uh, that is exactly what it is so all animals generate heat inside their own bodies we are the only inhabitant of the planet that uses external energy um, it's it's pretty amazing and uh, and we we started off using fire to make food edible hard foods like carrots and uh, parsnips and uh, food like meat all of this becomes really edible not let alone tasty when we use a fire to prepare it that's not something that squirrels do. They just eat the nuts just as they are. Uh, we also uh, used fire as protection against predators. And I'll come back to that connection with Adam uh, and Eve in, 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 the, uh, in the early days, in a few minutes. But um, meanwhile, uh, we use energy, and this really has been what has made civilization possible. Now, why then is the left so destructively hostile to energy, maintaining and propagating an illusion that we're short of energy, we're running out of energy? And, and you can look at uh, not only books like books by Paul Ehrlich, but many, many other works by uh, climate panicologists. Uh, panicologists, get it? Okay. Uh, <laughs> You have to forgive me. And uh, you uh, you will find that there's a shortage of energy and you mustn't use energy. And way back already in the presidency of uh, President Carter, who I think uh, is deeply grateful to President Barack Obama for his reputation, 
President Carter famously made a big fuss of turning the White House thermostats way down uh, to the point where people were shivering, and he walked around in this extremely nerdy and ugly-looking sweater, uh, and he was televised doing this to show him, oh, we've got to worry about energy. Anyway, look, uh, I don't want to spend the time right now because I've done it in the past, and I will do it again, on why it is that we do not have to worry about energy at all. But uh, the reason that the left is so implacably hostile to energy is because the left is hostile to Western civilization. Why is the West hostile to Western civilization? Well, partially because Western civilization is the natural and inevitable consequence of biblical values and biblical civilization seen through the eyes of Judaism and Christianity. I've literally just defined Western civilization right there. And one of the things that has distinguished Western civilization has been the employment of energy beyond just fire. And so in in many parts of the world that Western civilization never touched, Uh, the idea of fire was already there. Fire was used for cooking, fire was used for uh, protection, and to a slight extent in certain places, um, it was used for producing or melting iron out of the ore that was found in some places. But uh, we uh, started off the Romans, actually, quite early, Uh, Where did their energy come from? Well, um, animals. They used various uh, animals like bulls and horses uh, in order to to pull plows to basically, again, doing things that no other animal does, right? No bull makes a deal with a kangaroo or with a bat in order to use its energy. No, not at all. Only animals. Uh, humans, even back to the Romans, harnessed animals in order to use external energy to further our journey up the ladder of civilization. The Romans not only had animals, but they also had falling water, and they did use that uh, quite a bit. And then, of course, in early days, and I'm not 100% sure if the Romans used this as well, I think they did, but also wind power in the form of windmills. So there were windmills, and there's uh, water falling, and uh, turning water wheels, and there's fire. All of these things are forms of external energy. And then around about 1750, we're looking at the beginning of the Industrial Revolution taking place in England, mostly in England, but also uh, showing up in Sweden and Germany and Holland, uh, we we discover that you can take the energy of fire, which is, of course, in the form of heat, right? There's different forms of energy shows up in different forms, and they're actually convertible. And that was a big discovery. Uh, if you have motion, let's imagine you have water falling, and you make that turn a wheel, you can make that turning water wheel Uh, turn stones against each other or other some other substances would even and produce heat from the friction you know you if you've been a boy scout you know that you can light a fire from spinning a wooden rod in a wooden socket 
And so uh, motion can produce heat through friction, but the discovery of about 1750 was how heat can produce motion. That was a big breakthrough, and the mechanism was what we think of as the steam engine. And uh, so it worked, and uh, it moved on until late into the 1800s, we had another huge breakthrough, and that was not just learning how to convert heat into motion, which gave us uh, pumping and steam engines and steamships and all kinds of things, but in the late 1800s, we also figured out how to turn energy into electricity, because electricity is another form of energy, and uh, electricity started becoming known and understood in the late 1800s. Street lighting, um, motors that suddenly began to drive, so factories that for a long time had been located next to streams and rivers in order to be able to employ the falling water to drive the water wheel. Well, now they could be anywhere because the falling water could be used to generate electricity, and the electricity could be sent down wires to a factory a long way away, and at the factory, the electricity coming in the wires could be fed to an electric motor, which would give us back the motion that started the whole thing 100 miles away next to the river in the first place. And so uh, falling water could be turned into electricity, and also heat could be turned into electricity. Wow, we burn coal and get a fire, And with that, we create steam in a boiler, and we have the boiler drive a steam engine or a steam turbine later on, and that turns a generator, and out comes electricity. And incredible. It's wonderful. And, uh, of course, electricity could power everything. It was an incredibly effective way of conveying energy. Another way we convey energy in many cities around the United States and Europe is with something called gas. Uh, A utility creates gas by uh, heating coal, and that gas is uh, put under pressure and then sent down uh, iron pipes to people's homes, and people can then uh, use that gas to light their furnaces and get heat, to fire their stoves, to cook, and all of this is all the way back to the to the origins of energy fire at the very beginning of it this this may be a little bit more than than you wanted to know but i hope not right because happy warriors and you are a happy warrior if you're listening to this show and deriving any benefit or pleasure from it at all i hope both uh, then you are a happy warrior and happy warriors are always curious we're curious Happy warriors never say, oh, I don't understand about that stuff, shrug their shoulders and move on. They're curious. They try to expand their understanding of how the world really works. That's what we do. And so even if you're not into all of these uh, uh, calculations and computations, uh, you will nonetheless, I think, uh, pretty much understand, even if you're way out of this field, you'll still understand exactly what I've been talking about so far. And so uh, we use energy. We're the only creature to use energy. And it's a, it's a very major and very significant distinction between us and other occupants, living occupants of this planet. 
and we use energy. We use it for transportation. We use energy to grow food. And so the result is that unlike most creatures on the planet who have to be hunting and gathering 24-7, we really don't have to because by the use of external energy, you get the idea, through use of external energy, we're able to obtain our food with a fraction of the effort that hunter-gatherers do. So all of this is wonderful, and all of this is key to civilization, and all of this helps us understand why the progressive left uh, detests energy. They don't want you to use it. Uh, you are violating uh, certain environmental principles. Well, why don't I tell you the main source? Okay, the ultimate struggle, going back, the ultimate philosophical struggle uh, in the history of the world is the struggle between Jerusalem and Athens. Jerusalem, Bible-based, God-centric, theocentric, and um, with a, an awareness of the sacred and the holy. Athens, fundamentally materialistic. And even when you ran into philosophers, the Aristotles, the uh, Socrates, the Platos, uh, the Athenian philosophers, nonetheless, even they, even they, are essentially structuring a worldview around a fundamental materialistic outlook. Basically, if you cannot see it, weigh it, touch it, it doesn't exist. And so uh, there we have a, a, a brief outlook of energy. Why do I tell you all this? Because, of course, much of Greek philosophy is revealed in Greek mythology. And in my view, as far as this discussion is concerned, one of the most important mythologies that the Greeks perpetuated was the story of energy, or in, in their case at that point, still just fire. Uh, I don't think they understood that energy could be falling water, it could be gas, it could be electricity, it could be the, the energy stored up chemically in oil, it could be uh, the energy stored up in the nucleus of uranium atoms. All of these things came later, but the Greeks understood it to be fire, and in Greek mythology, you've got a world populated by the gods of whom Zeus, Z-E-U-S, Zeus was uh, one of the most important ones. And uh, Zeus made sure that fire existed only for the benefit of the gods. This is a little bit like uh, former Vice President Al Gore uh, telling us all to use less energy while he flies uh, private chartered aircraft Why? while he uh, anyway I'm sure you all know the story the extent the amount of energy that Al Gore uses on a daily basis um, is has been calculated by people who follow these kinds of things and I have no reason to doubt it uh, his daily energy usage about 25 times the daily energy usage of average Americans that's not bad uh, 25 times more energy usage. Does he feel bad about it? No, but he sure tells you to feel bad about using energy, and he tells you the inconvenient truth is that your use of energy will make the oceans rise. His? Not at all. That was pretty much the way the Greek gods looked at it in Greek mythology. Fire was for the use of Zeus only. 
And uh, one day, a human being, a brave, important, wonderful human being called Prometheus, decided that energy, fire, could be so valuable to his brothers and sisters, his fellow human beings on earth, that he decided to, since the gods would not allow mortals to use energy, he was going to steal it. And so he went and uh, stole the fire from Zeus and got it to the people, but Zeus caught him. And Zeus is tormenting him, torturing him day and night from that day to this for the insufferable and unforgivable sin of allowing ordinary human beings to use energy. And this ties in very closely to the progressive leftist view of energy, which is that uh, best thing, you shouldn't use it at all. By the way, this time of the year, I'm reading several pieces. I've mentioned them already. Uh, They are so ludicrous as to be laughable, but of people sanctimoniously talking about how they really know that they ought to cancel their summer vacations because every time you fly in an airplane, you are causing the polar ice cap to melt and you are using up energy, which reduces the atmosphere and produces carbon. Uh, Well, if they want to cancel their vacations, I hope they do, because that means there'll be more place in those destinations for the happy warriors. But that's exactly what they do. By contrast, there is a uh, description in ancient Jewish wisdom of what happened when Adam and Eve were banished from the Garden of Eden. Obviously, they were both aware that there was a terrible mistake, and uh, the um, the first couple of chapters of Genesis really describe this all uh, in ways, but in ways that are filled with mystery and uncertainty. And ancient Jewish wisdom helps to clarify exactly what's going on. It turns out that as they get kicked out of the Garden of Eden, uh, Adam tearfully speaks to God. And he says, how do you expect us to survive? How are we going to manage? In the garden, everything was safe. Everything was predictable. Everything was taken care of. And now you are putting us out into a volatile, dangerous world where we may or may not find food, where we may or may not uh, be attacked by vicious predators. I mean, Right? I know I know where you've sent us. And uh, we, we, uh, we pray, we pray for atonement. Please forgive us. God said, I forgive you. You've still lost the, uh, the, the garden. I mean, forgiveness doesn't mean you get back exactly to where you were before. It means we have a relationship. And by the way, in child rearing, really important to understand that point as well. Uh, a child can ask you for forgiveness. That doesn't mean you reinstate the trip to Disneyland that you confiscated. It means we have an ongoing relationship, and maybe next summer we'll we'll manage to do that trip. But forgiveness doesn't mean completely uh, eroding the punishment in the first place and essentially turning it all into a joke where nothing actually happened. So uh, God says, sure, I'm going to forgive you. And as a token of my forgiveness, I'm going to give you a gift. And I love the description, by the way. It's uh, it's in Hebrew, uh, but it's it's quite beautiful. Description says God knelt down and uh, collected a little pile of twigs 
and uh, the Lord then began to strike a stone against another stone, and finally a spark leapt out and uh, ignited the kindling, which in- ignited the twigs, which in- ignited the branches, and Mo and uh, Adam leapt back in terror, which makes sense, right? Imagine the first man never seen fire and it's it's dark it's getting pretty frightening out there you're out of the beautiful garden of eden you're on your own and all of a sudden these flames rear up adam uh, really <laughs> was terrified and god says here it is here's the gift i am giving you fire this is called energy it's a form of energy called fire and this will scare away wild beasts you've got nothing to worry about and what's more it'll enable you to eat far more than you ever thought that you could eat up till now. You didn't know that it was possible to soften hard vegetables. You didn't know that it was possible to grill meat and so on and so forth, although that came by a little later. But at any rate, here is an enormous contrast between Judeo-Christian civilization, which says energy is a gift from God, that allows us to achieve so much more with our lives than we would have without it. It enables us to devote so much less of our lives to drudgery and more to meaningful activity. And electricity, of course, seems to be the ultimate manifestation. Electricity, ultimately one day generated exclusively by nuclear power, will probably be the key to ultimately freeing mankind from all forms of drudgery. But meanwhile, in sharp contrast to the culture out there, which tries to indoctrinate you into feeling guilty about using energy— you can now know that energy is a gift of God to his children for the purpose of building a civilization, for being more creative, and for living a more purposeful life. The progressive left, hating a Judeo-Christian Bible-based civilization, obviously hate that which helps to make it possible, namely energy, And as a result, they're doing everything in their power to plunge the world back into the dark ages. They really are. They're not going to succeed, but that is what they are really trying to do. Now, that's only the start of what we need to get clear when it comes to the energy that the progressive left is determined to prevent us using and which we should use happily. Our response to the left should be, hey, we pay for the energy. It's none of your business. I'm not asking you to pay for my energy. And uh, I deny your premise that there's a shortage of energy. I just deny that. Uh, If you built more dams in California, you would totally solve California's water and electricity problems. But you don't want to do that. We know why you don't want to do that, because you want to see civilization shrivel and perish. Well, uh, talking of civilization, let me tell you about uh, a 19th century British poet called Samuel Taylor Coleridge. He has a poem, a famous poem called The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner. 
and the introduction to the poem is a paragraph that reads as follows. How a ship, having passed the line, was driven by storms to the cold country towards the South Pole, and how from thence she made her course to the tropical latitude of the great Pacific Ocean, and of the strange things that befell, and in what manner the ancient mariner came back to his own country. And... Uh, and so um, the uh, the ancient mariner is back home after this voyage down the Atlantic to the southern tip of South America. They rounded Cape Horn. They came up into the warm waters of the Pacific. The weather got warmer and warmer, and they hit the doldrums. They hit that part of the Pacific where there's just no wind. Uh, plus, uh, there's, a, there's an albatross that comes into the story. It's a wonderful poem. And I'm not going to, it's, it's a too long to read, but there's an important part that has to do with the whole topic I am excited to be sharing with you today. Let me just read a couple of uh, stanzas, and then we'll get to the key one that I'm interested in. It's an ancient mariner, stoppeth one of three. By thy long gray beard and glittering eye, now wherefore stoppest thou me? Three young men are on their way to a wedding, and before they can go into the wedding hall, uh, the ancient mariner stops them, and he wants to tell them the story. Continuing stanza number two, the bridegroom's doors are opened wide, and I am next of kin. The guests are met, the feast is set, mayest hear the merry din. He holds him with his skinny hand, there was a ship, quoth he, hold off, unhand me, grey-beard loon. Et foons his hand dropped he, he holds him with his glittering eye, the wedding guest stood still, and listens like a three-year child, the mariner hath his will. Uh, the ship was cheered, the harbour cleared, merrily did we drop below the kirk, below the hill, below the lighthouse top. The sun came up on the left, out of the sea came he, and he shot bright, and on the right went down into the sea. That tells us they were travelling south down the Atlantic. Higher and higher every day till over the mast at noon. The wedding guest here beat his breast, for he heard the loud bassoon. He wants to be left alone. This old guy's hanging on to him, telling him the story. All he wants to do is go into the party. The bride hath paced into the hall, red as a rose is she, nodding their heads before her goes, the merry minstrel sea. And um, I'm, I'm jumping ahead now quite a bit. And uh, they, they come to the south and it's freezing cold. And there's an albatross. And uh, now we come to the really important part. The sun now rose upon the right. Out of the sea came he, still hid in the mist and on the left, went down into the sea. So we now know the ship's going north because east is on the right. And um, I had done a hellish thing, and it would work him woe, for all averred I had killed the bird that made the breeze to blow. Ah, wretch, they said, the bird to slay that made the breeze to blow. Uh, they're blaming the ancient mariner for the doldrums. They're, they, I mean, they're, it's hot. There's nothing. They don't know if they'll ever get out. They're running out of water. They're running out of food. And they're blaming him for having killed the bird, which made the wind stop blowing. And now we come. All in a hot and copper sky, the bloody sun at noon, right up above the mast did stand, no bigger than the moon. Day after day, day after day, we stuck, nor breath nor motion, as idle as a painted ship upon a painted ocean. Water, water everywhere, and all the boards did shrink. Water, water everywhere, nor any drop to drink. And what I want to talk about is where did Samuel Taylor Coleridge get the imagery of all in a hot and copper sky? Where did that come from? 
And uh, you won't be surprised when I often talk about how the Bible lay at the core of Western civilization. Uh, this is a, a language that anybody in England in the late night, well, this was in the middle of the 19th century, anybody in England would have known uh, Deuteronomy, right? Deuteronomy chapter, Deuteronomy chapter, where are we? Um, 28. Deuteronomy chapter 28, uh, verse, oh, I'm sorry, I'm, I should have this right in front of me. Um, uh, Deuteronomy 28, here we go, verse 23. And the skies above your head shall be copper, and the earth under you iron. Copper skies, get it? And this is a curse. This section, this whole chapter, is what will befall the Israelites when they violate their covenant with God. And one of these huge curses is, the skies above your head shall be copper, and the earth under you iron. And of course, uh, it raises the obvious question, which is, like, why, like, why is a copper sky um, a curse, and iron under your feet? Like, what's that about? Well, What's really interesting, and you've always, you know, you've got to, if you want to study the Bible effectively, and you want to really grasp ancient Jewish wisdom's insights, uh, you have to dot around, you have to move around, you have to look at different verses, uh, particularly when you get a very clear hint to do so. In this case, uh, copper sky, iron earth, what's going on here? Very puzzling, because in Leviticus chapter 26, verse 19, Right? I mean, if some of you are not really into the Bible, hey, this is like reading Shakespeare. We're talking about something that lies at the heart of the understanding of the West. And you care about the West because your life, your comfort, your survival, your health, uh, everything depends upon the durability of Western civilization. So this is worth knowing. Deuteronomy 26, 19, and I will break your proud glory your skies will be like iron and your earth like copper. Whoa, wait a sec. Didn't we just say skies, copper, earth, iron? That's what Leviticus, that's what Deuteronomy just said. And that's the verse Samuel Taylor Coleridge took for the theme of the rhyme of the ancient mariner, hot and copper sky. But now Leviticus turns it around and says, hey, copper, earth, iron, sky. What is going on here? Well, to find out the answer, you need to know that um, sky and earth, even though sky is hard to define, like exactly where is the sky, sky is always used as a metaphor for great distance, as far away as you can get. I'll give you an example of that. You may want to look this up. It's, it's kind of interesting. Um, it would be in Deuteronomy, and take a look at Deuteronomy. I should know what chapter this is. I shouldn't be needing to be wasting your time, for which I really apologize. 28, right? Deuteronomy chapter 28. And um, in Deuteronomy chapter 28, uh, you will find... No, it's not 28. It's 30. I'm sorry. It's chapter 30. Deuteronomy 30, 12. 
it is not in the heavens that you should say who among us can go to the... Basically, uh, God is saying, look, I'm giving you the Torah. I'm giving you the set of instructions. These are the rules by which you can safely operate a society and become a successful society, growing a successful civilization. And here are the rules. And never say, I can't get to them. It's to, they're inaccessible. And the language the Bible uses is, hey, they're not in the heaven. It's not far. So now we know that and when ancient Jewish wisdom explains this, it makes sense that um, in Leviticus, it says iron sky, copper earth. In Deuteronomy, it says copper sky, iron earth. It doesn't matter. It's not that the earth has to be copper for it to be a, a, a curse or the other way around. No, it's the distance between them that's important. God is essentially saying that when you deserve a curse, I'm going to keep copper and iron as far apart from one another as I possibly can. Why? Well, happy warriors who have wide ranges of interest and enthusiasms, well, happy warriors know that copper and iron are distant from one another. They're separate from one another on the electronegativity scale. In other words, uh, copper tends to be something that accepts electrons and iron tends to be something that gives up electrons because of its um, uh, chemical and uh, atomic structure so if you push this is really true you can try it if you're homeschoolers and you want a great homeschooling experiment that your kids will talk about for days uh, get hold of an iron roofing nail or and a copper nail. Get an iron nail and a copper nail. Push them into a lemon, and because all you need is an electrolyte, something that conducts electric uh, conducts electricity. Uh, you push them into a lemon and attach an LED bulb to the end of the nails, the copper and iron nails. Guess what? It'll light up. In other words. Copper and iron in close proximity to one another can enlighten the earth, can bring light and energy and power. That's the point. This is amazingly important. And without ancient Jewish wisdom, I think you'll agree that the verse in Leviticus and the verse in Deuteronomy that speak about a, a, a copper sky, iron earth, or iron sky, copper, would be incomprehensible. But because you're a happy warrior, you're comfortably excited by the idea that if a curse is that copper and iron will be far as far apart as they can get, namely heaven and earth, then a blessing must be when they come together. And what happens when you put copper and iron together? You get an electrical current flowing, the production of energy, which is a beautiful thing because what it's telling us is that when we behave, when we operate our civilization according to the rules, when we operate our civilization in accordance with the covenant and in accordance with the patterns of life, what we find is that there is energy available. But when we violate those rules, as the progressive left loves doing, what they're essentially doing is making energy harder and harder to get, more and more inaccessible, more and more expensive. And so as the progressive left has been in charge of so much of America, think what's happened to the cost of electricity. 
And if this is something that interests you, I'm going to leave this to you to research. It's not hard to find. But with the left's regulations and rules and hatred of energy and hatred of civilization and hatred of progress and hatred of technology, uh, the left has elevated the cost of electricity to the point where it is now becoming a real burden for many families around the United States of America. The same, of course, is true for Europe and other parts of the world. It is only in a more conservative worldview that energy becomes available, economical, usable, and enables us to enhance our lives and increase the kind of quality of our life that allows us to do more than merely subsist. That's what using external sources of energy does. That's why God created us as the only creature on the planet that does use these external sources of energy, which are made available to us as a huge blessing. Yes, fantastic thing, very, very beautiful, and something that each and every one of us really ought to be using. Um, I think you know how to respond to the left on this. Uh, I think you know how to respond to your energy supplier, who probably sends you regular mailings as they do me, saying you've used three times more energy than your most efficient, energy-efficient neighbors, right? They don't send me letters saying I'm using twice as much coffee as in, as my neighbors. They don't say that I'm, I'm using uh, twice as much wool in my clothing. No, they've got it in for energy, not for all resources, just energy. Water is also a part of that, of course. Anyways, they know as well as we do that uh, it is at, in the foreseeable future not possible, not possible to supply our energy by wind or solar, not going to happen. Uh, we're also not going to see electrical airplanes, but I told you already about that last week or the week before. And uh, all of this is to celebrate energy, the joy of using energy. Now, uh, the website is rabbidaniellappin.com. Now, why am I telling you this? Not only because I want you to go there and look at the resources and see whether my efforts have produced anything that is useful to you, because only by being useful to you do I get my cornflakes for breakfast. And so uh, we have a new product, which is, is really very exciting. And that is, um, uh, it's, it's really fantastic. It is called, um, you, you know my book, uh, Business Secrets from the Bible, right? Well, what's really great is that Business Secrets from the Bible is now available to you in audio form. And many of you prefer listening to reading. You, you lead busy lives. Time to read is hard to come by. But go ahead and listen while you're doing other stuff. Works just fine. So please uh, go to www.rabbidaniellappin.com and take a look for the audio version of Business Secrets from the Bible. You'll listen to it while you exercise. You'll listen to it while you commute. You'll listen to it while you go driving in the countryside, using up gasoline with happiness and joy because it is a gift from God. 
I am Rabbi Daniel Lappin, and I am grateful to you for making this show possible and giving me an opportunity to share ancient Jewish wisdom with you and making it accessible to everybody. Thanks for being part of the show. Thanks for helping tell other people about the show. Uh, Communicate with me. Sign on to our uh, thought tools. All of this at the website, rabbidaniellappin.com. Don't hesitate. So uh, until next week, I wish you a wonderful week of very good times with your family, with your finances, with your faith, and with your friendships. God bless.